The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Waves for Thursday, August 16th, the Omarosa-esque edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate, and here with me in Slate's DC studio is Latifa Lyles, a vice president at the National Network to End Domestic Violence and the former director of the Women's Bureau at the Labor Department under Barack Obama. How's it going, Latifa? It's going well. Thank you. And joining us from New York over the airwaves is the phenomenal producer of this very podcast, Verilyn Williams. Hi, Verilyn. Hi, Christina. Hi, Latifa. How you doing? <laughs> good. Uh, <laughs> it's good to have you back. You were gone for a couple of weeks. What were you I up to? I was. I was. I went to on vacation. I went to Bermuda. Good for you. Then I went to Detroit for um, the National Association of Black Journalists Convention, mm-hmm. which, as listeners will hear in a second, one of the people we're talking about attended last year and kind of had a big headline coming out of the convention. So, you know, she just keeps coming up for me around this time every year. (laughs) It's about me, guys. It, It certainly is. That brings us to our topics for today. So on today's episode, we're going to start by talking about the woman who continues to pop up in Verilyn's life, former White House employee and Apprentice star Omarosa Manigault Newman, who is currently flogging her new Trump tell-all book with the claim that she heard tapes of the president saying the N-word, among other weird things that she claims he did. Uh, Then we're going to review The Miseducation of Cameron Post, a new film about a teenage girl who gets sent to Christian gay conversion therapy after she gets caught having sex with a girl. And... Finally, we will discuss a major first for the NFL, male cheerleaders. There are three of them, and they're going to be cheering and dancing at football games this fall, coming to a television set near you. Also today in our Slate Plus segment, where we take a topic and rate it from 1 to 10 on how sexist it is, we will decide, is it sexist to challenge a random woman to a debate with the promise (laughs) of money the way Ben Shapiro did to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? If you're not yet a Slate Plus member and you would like to hear how sexist that is, (laughs) you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right, on to Omarosa. She first got famous as a contestant on the very first season of The Apprentice, where she was sort of played as a big backstabbing villain. Um, And that's where she got to know Trump, who hired her as a communications aide in the White House. She got fired earlier this year, and now she is dominating the news cycle. Verilyn, I want you to explain exactly what's going on here, but I also want you to... uh, to explain what you and Latifa were talking about before we started recording, which is that apparently everyone assumes that you know her. She's omnipresent. <laughs> well, I, I, the reason why so I asked Latifa, did she know Omarosa? One, because they both are in D.C., they're black women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just felt like, you know, when she goes to enough of these parties or these like smooching kind of networking scene, DC <laughs> seems one of those places that's like so small and insidery that people that are in politics probably. Talk. But then is she a p- politician is another question. I guess I, we should all be asking ourselves. All of that is true. Everything you just said is true. Um, and so the fact that I, d- I feel like it's a near miss. I have never met her. There are several people who think that I have met her and assume <laughs> that I have met her in addition to you. So it is a perfectly makes perfect sense that you would ask that question. But no, I have not. And in fact, um, I was very um, surprised at her, her sort of even being here on the DC scene when I learned about it, because, you know, DC is DC, and she's not. I mean, there's lots of things about <laughs> mm. her that are not DC. So just, you know, the fact that she sort of, you know, descended in, in this in this world um, is a little odd. What about her is not DC? Would you say? Well, you know, I mean, she's she's not a she's not wonk. She's not a wonk. Mm-hmm. She's not a, you know, an aspiring. She didn't have a, an aspiring politician. She didn't work on the Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, she she doesn't. I mean, you know, maybe she is, and that's why she's at the White House. But she just didn't fit the mold of, you know, pulling up your. Rolling up your sleeves and like diving into you know the social justice realm, yeah, or like an issue you cared working about. on civil rights or you know defending black women or anything like that, you know. But she was definitely here. 
Yeah. But I was surprised to read that um, she actually got her first political kind of position working on Vice President Al Gore's campaign in mm. 1990. Yeah, and, that surprised um, me too. One of um, that person's aide said that it was one of the worst like hires they ever made. Um, <laughs> so her reputation definitely precedes her and I you know I always go back and forth whenever people say negative things about women at work I'm always just like is it that she's being assertive and you're feeling a certain way about that because she's a woman Um, particularly a black woman then you get like the angry black woman stereotype but this so reason that we're talking about Amarosa right now is that on Sunday she told NBC's Meet the Press that she recorded White House um, Chief of Staff John Kelly while he was firing her and she proceeded to make this recording from the Situation Room which supposedly is supposed to be one of the most securest locations in the world and I remember listening to a podcast talking about this over the weekend and just being like my god this feels like a scene out of scandal (laughs) but then the other end of it is so she has this book that she's write this tell-all um about her time in the in the white house which many other former white house aides once they depart no matter who the president is have written books like this but there is something like i feel like when i hear her say i needed to record it to be believed I don't disagree with that. I don't think Mm. that. I think that had she not, I mean, she's already a reality TV star. She's actually been on The Apprentice three different times, starting with the first season in 2004. Oh, wow. Trump hired her um, as part of his campaign um, when he was running his election campaign. Then he hired her as one of the nine additional people for his transition team. And then he hired her to be a part of his cabinet. So... She's had a long history with Trump. Like, this is not like they just got cool yesterday. Like, they have been cool for... I graduated from high school in 2004. Like, they've been cool for a very long time. Um, And so there must have been... They knew how to... Like, she's been really good at manipulating the media, right? Oh, yeah. He's also been really good at manipulating the media. That's how he became president, or manipulating his base. Um, And so I think that... I think that in a way... Had she not had those recordings, like, I think she knows the person that she's dealing with well enough to know that the only way that she will be taken as seriously as she is right now in the moment is because she has those recordings. And he's already tried to discredit her by saying, like, what did he call her? A lowlife. She was cool with me until she got fired. Like, he's already, you know, the things that he's saying to dismiss her, um, despite the fact that he's, like, continued to rehire, there, there are characteristics that that you must be gelling with to keep hiring this person and having them around you. Yeah, it really strikes me that the qualities she has that Trump likes are the same qualities that are underlining her current media tour and the reasons why she's turning against him now. You know, she is incredibly ruthless and smart and good at making people listen to her. I mean, I can see why she was hired for, uh, you know, Al Gore's campaign and the Trump campaign over and the White House, like she comes off really, really smart and poised and like somebody you would much rather have in your corner than in the other person's corner. But the the thing that I'm wondering now is like, sh- why should anyone care about the things she's talking about? So she's talking about how, oh, Trump didn't know that she was getting fired until she was fired. That's that's the whole purpose of the John Kelly tape or, or the she then taped the conversation she had with Trump where he said, oh, I didn't realize you were fired or something like that. That's news to me. And then she says she taped uh, Ivanka and Jared Kushner saying, oh, we also didn't know you were getting fired. That that's not uh, of public interest. You know, we already know that Trump is incompetent at running the White House. That's only of interest to Omarosa. And so she's using the promise of this other tape where he allegedly said the N-word, which she does not have access to. And she has never heard it. She said she got it confirmed. In the book, she said that she only got confirmation of it. But now she's going on TV saying, oh, no, after the book went to press, I heard it. Which I, I don't believe her. Because I think she's an unreliable narrator who uh, is 
you know, knows that she won't be getting on these news shows unless she has something more newsworthy and relevant to say than, oh, Trump didn't know I was getting fired. So she's promising this tape. I saw her on the Today Show with Savannah Guthrie. She couldn't even really explain what was in the tape. Savannah Guthrie kept asking her and she's like, oh, it's in my book. It's in my book. It's in my book. And Savannah Guthrie was like, well, how long was the tape? And she was like, uh, three minutes. Like it just it seemed like somebody who had actually heard the tape and wanted to get press by explaining what was in the tape would have actually explained what the context was in the tape. So I'm going to be honest. I'm going to I'm going to be very, Good. very brutally honest and say a couple of things. One is that whenever something so sensational comes out, like someone with the gumption and the the wherewithal to take a recording device into the White House. If you recall also, the other drama nugget was when she had to be escorted off the grounds and when she was, there was also this hullabaloo when she was actually fired where, you know, there was this claim that she had stormed the White House back and she had to be like, you know, you have this vision of two Secret Service guards holding her Mm. hands and she's holding a box of papers (laughs) or whatever, something very dramatic. So so the, the two things I was thinking is, first, like definitely there's this sort of like, you know, um, scandal kind of thing. But the actual book itself and what's in it is much more, if we're going to just just let me do this, this, this metaphor, um, it's much more, um, you know, Selena Myers-esque White House. <laughs> and so I'm going to just like say she's sort of like bringing all of the, the, the White House drama to, to, to the fore. And, you know, just some of the stuff in here is, is really remarkable. It's literally reads like the way that show works and you know you're talking about veep veep yeah, yeah. and which is mm-hmm. one of my favorite shows by the way um and this 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 strangeness this almost sort of like you know circus theme character about it and the honesty for me is that whenever whenever i hear that someone is going to say something or had the audacity to the fact that this is so you know such an unusual and crazy time and to be living in in the white house the idea that somebody I'm just sort of waiting for all of the people to line up with the similar story. And, of course, there's a multitude Mm. of credibility issues. But a little piece of me is like, you know – Oh, who's who's you know who's gonna who's gonna do their tell all now? I'm just waiting for all of them. I want all of them. I want to read all of them. Like you know, the first guy, I, it was like it made my whole week. And it's like this is this is this is how this is you know this is what, you know what I hope for. And it's it's horrible and ridiculous. But there are so many things that are so like as a political and as somebody who you know worked in and with the White House all of the time, um, half of the things that we hear that go on on a daily basis are just putting, you know, decades of history on its head. What are some of the things, the weirdest things or the most outrageous things that you have read in the book or read that you could read in the book that you would say, you know, I can't believe this is actually happening in the White House? Well, the protocol pieces are are crazy. Like the fact that you have access to this very important person who has should have numerous clearances and just not be exposed in this way. You mean the fact that she's able to just, like, call Trump? Yeah, just talk about the fact that, you know, he's a germaphobe and she knows that. Or, like, you know, how he feels about his kids and how he feels about, um, you know, what he does and where he sleeps. And that all of that is, so like, the security concerns around all of that, I think, is not just one thing, but this idea that somebody who is in the seat of power, you know, who has the ability to, you know, protect the nation and should it's, you know, despite who the person is, there should be a shroud. There Mm. should be, you know, some level of protection and privacy. And the fact that, like, you know, reality stars are kind of like, you know, I think I think Trump chewed and swallowed a piece of paper like the like <laughs> chewing the swallow and the piece of paper for me was like that that was like the veep moment where i was like oh come on you know you gotta be I kidding i cannot picture somebody you doing that in real life except for possibly me. donald trump right and so i so that's the part that's disturbing this idea that you know it's not just the informality and the disorganization of it but you know, this is supposed to be a very secure place and a very um, protected place for a reason. And why wasn't she screened for recording devices before going into the Situation Room, especially if she's somebody who 
uh, you know, you're about to fire, so probably don't trust very much. Well, from what I from what I understand is the situation. It's like it's an honor system. Like there are yeah, signs yeah. that say, mm-hmm. oh, so "Put your phone mm-hmm. here before you go into the most secure place yeah, in the a world." A sign has really stopped anyone who wants to record a <laughs> the secret security. It's about vetting the people. The security <laughs> yeah. is literally about you know vetting and trust and having mm. really having gatekeepers who know the difference mm. and um, yes. being the person who says, despite whether or not you're going to leave your cell phone in the box outside the door, that you should even be invited to this level of the White House anyway. But I think all of this speaks to the fact that we have a reality TV show president who who made his cabinet of people that don't have political experience. Like, what did... You know what I mean? I feel like that honor system mm-hmm. or that feeling of like, I'm going to do this in the interest of my country comes from people that actually wanted to be politicians, wanted to serve. Amorosa wants to serve Amorosa and mm-hmm. has been since 2004, mm-hmm. right? And so now she's in the White House. Like, what else did we expect? Like, of course, she's taking notes about him chewing mm-hmm. and spit and swallowing pieces of paper. Like, that's the kind of information that they would want you to say when you're doing the little interviews after <laughs> you've recorded a whole scene and then the producers put you in a box for the reality TV show and they're asking you, so how did you feel when Donald <laughs> Trump was talking? Like, those are the kind of, like, little details that she probably would have been collecting for those yeah. moments, you know? But, I, you know, to answer your question, Christina, about, like, why does this matter? I think, well, one, it shows just how how insecure this White House is, right? So if, if Amoroso, whatever she recorded, wherever those recordings are, I'm sure some maybe Russian hacker has access to them or already has them, right? So there's that feeling of like, right? And then this White House, the reason that they gave for ousting Amoroso was because of the amount of abusing of the White House car service, right? And so (laughs) when I really think about that, like, that's what the White House, that's the reason the White House gave for getting rid of her. In light of, like, all these other things, it just shows just how unstable this, this whole situation is, you know? Like, even the calls, I mean, I know, yes, this is John Kelly's job to fire her, so he didn't technically have to consult the president. But even if you don't know, wouldn't you pretend that you knew? You know, like why would you call her and be like, "I'm, I can't believe he did that." Like, there's just no, there's no protocol across the board. So of course she recorded because the people that she's working with, there is no protocol for anyone, not even the and president. People, and people like me want to read about it. So. <laughs> yes. <you know. laughs> so. One thing that I've been thinking about recently, I the I had written a couple pieces about Omarosa in the past couple of days. One of them, my editor came up with a great headline, which pretty much encapsulates my feelings about this whole thing, which is that there's nothing Omarosa can say or do that could possibly matter. Like if she, if what she's saying is true, that you know this tape of Trump saying the N word exists, will that matter? And I kind of had a little disagreement with my editor over this because yeah, he says... I don't agree with that headline at all. Good. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say because I think that... I mean, Omarosa is going around saying like, oh, once I heard the N-word tape, that's when I really knew Trump was racist. I don't believe that. And I don't believe that there's anyone out there who, who doesn't already... who can support Trump... Uh, in everything that he's done, his becoming famous by saying Obama was, uh, you know, not born in this country, uh, saying the Central Park Five was guilty and affirming that years later, you know, in 2016, I believe, was the last time that he affirmed that that that's what he believed. His his racially discriminatory practices in his housing complexes, not to mention just all of the stuff that he has said and done while he's president that's racist. I don't see how you could support all of that. And then he says the N-word and you'll say like, well, (laughs) that's the last straw. (laughs) But my editor says um, that there are some people whose definition of racism is so narrow that 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 could really be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Can we say white people? Think? Can we can we just go ahead and say that there are white people that think that? Because I don't yes. think anyone in this whole like anyone else. I think there's some, there's something there, and specifically in sort of how the press secretary responded to it and how he responded to it is is a really interesting point. Like there are lots of other things that both of them haven't disavowed, and I think that the idea of using the N word it's like it's not in my vocabulary. I would never say that. Like so, there are things I think you're right. There are these. Sort of like as long as I don't go there, then, you know, I still have this sort of this thin layer of I'm not really supporting somebody who's a racist. I don't know. I, I, Is it I the don't... consciousness? Is that like I guess I'm trying to understand like what the difference like the person that believes 
that that is a difference? Like, what is what is it that for you to say the N word that you're like consciously saying a racial slur and therefore not that not even having the um, the couth to even pretend? You know what I mean? Like, what is? Well, I think that a lot of the other instances of someone or, or Trump or being accused of being racist are perceptions or you know sort of understanding you know, loaded words and, you know, dog whistles and things that you have to sort of take an additional step to to get to why this could be considered racist as opposed to just saying the N-word and saying I'm a racist. And I do think that for some people that don't live in our worlds, um, a lot of that stuff is, I think, easier to gloss over. I, I'm i on the fence about whether it would make a difference, but I definitely understand that there are people who um, <clears throat> it's much harder to argue that than to say like, well, I think this person's a dog, and well, I don't think that was racist, you know. He, pe- which is exactly essentially what the press secretary said. She, right. Her response was, he he makes he makes derogatory comments to everybody. <laughs> right. I mean, that was essentially her response. Like she went after I mean, he tweeted that Omarosa was a dog. Yeah, she's like he he he. You know, these are these are the types of he 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 talks about a lot of people in these ways, um, <laughs> which I don't think she would have said if it was simply just about the n-word so there is something to be said for you know he could he could always say well yeah i call that person this but i, I treat everybody that way so Verilyn, tell me why you disagree with me i mean this is now i was just thinking about roseanne you know calling Val- valerie jared a uh, an ape right and her being like i didn't even know she was black i'm just i just feel like <laughs> <laughs> I just I get very just I I this is so insidious to me like this is not even something that she recorded these are things that were even coming out before her right and I think the reason this whole thing matters is because we as a nation care about this and we're talking about this because a reality TV show wrote a book about her reality TV president boss right and so I think that we need to take a hard look at ourselves and just like this whole because I was hearing stories about this um, apprentice N word. Um, recording for a while, like a long time, like yeah, so the even idea during that, the campaign, yeah. I think people were talking about it. So the idea that now people are asking whether this changes the game, and now that Omarosa has written this book and written this tell-all, like to me that shows just like we are really in this is like another like we are really in trouble as a nation. That this is the reason, that, and I guess I'm always just really like even with the you know unite the right rally, like we talked about whether we should even bring it up because are we giving a platform to you know like should they be should they be leading the conversation on race and i just think anytime we having these conversation it just feels like it's reactionary mm-hmm. to like the the word like the what people define as the worst possible um definition where children are being separated from their families like he's talking about m3 like the things that he says are so much more harmful to actual policies and actually people's lives but no one is talking about that i mean people talk about the story but i mean this literally has taken up the news service for since sunday so what is like what's happening like why is it that we're stuck in this rut i think it's because we in washington we talk about like you just mentioned a, a couple of policies. the The general electorate is not in the same headspace or the same place. And you know, it, it, just being out in the Midwest recently, and just you know, talking to folks who um, may may have voted, may not have voted, but are just people like living their lives. I can see and, and imagine a pretty significant slice of the population queuing up to read some of this where they wouldn't necessarily have read some DC insiders book um, that does talk about all the esoteric policy implications of the types of things that happened in briefing meetings. I think that there's something about having somebody who is from Hollywood or from the reality TV space that people might perk up and listen to who just don't follow policy and don't think about can't take the three steps to understand the implication of this comment on mm-hmm. separating families and children. And I think that that we we continuously underestimate the impact of, you know, the everyday um, American voter. That's a really good point. All right. Listeners, let us know uh, if you've read Omarosa's book, if you think Trump saying the N-word would matter, and let us know if you know her and if you have any good inside info on her. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. 
Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. All right. The Miseducation of Cameron Post. This is a movie that came out at the beginning of this month. It's directed by Desiree Akavan and based on a 2012 novel by Emily Danforth. It stars Chloe Grace Moretz as a high schooler in Montana in 1993 who gets caught in the backseat of a car with her best friend at the homecoming dance. They're having sex. She gets caught. She gets whisked away to God's Promise, which is a conversion therapy camp. Um And she is forced to go through a bunch of therapy about where she has to talk about why she has same-sex attractions because there's no such thing as homosexuality in this world. There's only a sin, the sin of same-sex attraction, which can and should be avoided just like any other sin. So the thing that stood out to me about this depiction of conversion therapy is there's a bunch of little sort of indignities like – Somebody will show up in their bedroom at the in the middle of the night with a flashlight to make sure the two roommates aren't in bed together. They won't let them listen to pop music. They can only listen to worship songs. But it's not this sort of what I would uh, what comes to my mind when I think of a conversion therapy camp. Like it's sort of militaristic and physically abusive, like a boot camp. These kids get to go to a Christian rock concert which is a Christian rock concert, but it's still a rock concert. I actually thought the music was pretty good. Uh, They get to hang out with their friends alone in the woods. It didn't seem that bad. What? So before we get into the movie, I'm curious about what you guys thought about the depiction of conversion therapy in this well, so so the first when I first heard about it and read about it, I couldn't help. And I know Desiree Akavan, who's the d- director and the screen, one of the screenwriters, had a negative reaction to people comparing it to "But I'm a Cheerleader," mm-hmm. but that's I saw "But I'm a Cheerleader" in the theater. And wow. for those of you who don't know, uh, this was also um, a movie that was about conversion therapy. It was campy. It was a little bit comic relief. In RuPaul's sense. in it. Yeah, it's, it's a so lot. Good. It's great. Good actor. It was just like good people in it. Are we it still was, calling it, RuPaul good, by the way? No. 19, <laughs> 1999, maybe? RuPaul's a very good actor in it. He is. He is. So, so, but, so, so I know that there's some issues with like comparing it to that, but um, there is definitely... There was def- definitely some release in that depiction that I feel like the, the, both the campiness and the the humor and the sort of the hopefulness about that that the that the informality sort of gave to this movie. I, I in some ways it was just so like depressing in the fact that like the reason they weren't they were not like hemmed into like a cage and they were not you know they could just get up and make themselves breakfast and you know move around as they wanted or go on a hike or whatever but at the same time the thing that kept going playing in my mind is like this is really the only place they have so that even though it wasn't restrictive in their mind and this was one of the characters who thought he was going to go back home and then his dad said he couldn't come back home was like it's either here or the street and there's something about that that was very, very grim in that it wasn't just here's a place you go, you know, get fixed and come home. It was almost like this is the only place you have to go and the only other option is for you to live on the streets or fend for yourself as like a 16-year-old um, because you can't come home. And I think that it allowed me to – because it was I wasn't so focused on like the day-to-day like boot campy restrictions, mm. I was more thinking about like – what are they doing there? Why are they there? What's happening? Is this a school? Are they going back? And then it was this idea that like, this was really like the last hope, you know, and I think it was this idea from their parents that like, they can't be in the house with me. So this is another place for them to go until they turn into an adult. And then it was also, you know, it kind of felt very like foster care-ish in a sense that it was like, you know, it, it had a very orphanage sort of feel to me where, you know, this was just like a resting place for you for the moment. And then when you aged out, you were going to just have to face the world alone, which was very stark and very like scary to me, including the ending when I'm just like, <laughs> they're going to their demise. Like I just it was just awful. Like this yeah. idea that they were free was 
really like upsetting. Yeah. Mm. Because they were not free. They were they were cast out. Yeah. Verilyn, what did you think? The whole time I was thinking these are young people that grew up in very Christian households or um, most of them have like they believe like the main character, Cameron, like she went to Bible study. She um, grew up in a household believing in the evil evangelical. And I keep saying evangelical Christianity because I'm a Christian. I feel like I have to out myself as a Christian. <laughs> uh, uh, grew up in a Methodist church, go to just like a I believe Jesus type church now. Um and I think that there is a different. So, like when you believe the thing, like the the ideas that uh, that said that your who you are, who your sexual identity is a sin. Like if you really believe that, then the idea the, the, to going to this like for, like as Latifa described it, I think that's a great analogy. Like this forced to care situation, you're in it not like thinking that you need to to get away or run away you're in it because you you're trying to change um one of the things that really like one of the scenes that really affected me so i was a i was highly affected by this film <laughs> she's on the phone she calls her aunt after going through like one of these what i see as destructive and self-hating therapy sessions um she calls her aunt and she's just like you know would you be okay if i came home and like her aunt automatically starts crying she's crying and her aunt says to her like don't you want to have a family one day and she's just like yeah you know what i mean like that idea that like you know she wants i think she wanted i saw her wanting to change and her just like trying to grapple with the fact that like they're telling me that what i feel right now is wrong i don't want to be wrong i want to go by this faith that i've grew i've known my whole entire life and but there's something about this just feels wrong about this you know and then later on there's a scene with I don't know how much of this you want to give away, but later on, there's a moment where she like realizes like, oh, they don't know what the f they're doing, and that's the moment I think you know after like the one of the most traumatic. I I cried a lot during this movie because I was also just crying as for me like to see my faith be used as a tool to like be so damaging to people always really bothers me and always really affecting on me, hmm. and so I was just watching it, just thinking like, my God, like how how is it that there are people that like for me, Jesus is all about love. <laughs> and so how can you use a person that literally died for people? How can you use what he believes to mentally torment people? Like that to me was like I was just very affected by just the idea of that, especially on teenagers, you know. And I think a lot of this felt very teenage campy. I don't know. Like there was like a very like teenage vibe to it. But I I think I read some read in one of the the things that we we had for this for this conversation that um there was like no rating on this because they didn't want to put it like they normally would make this an R rated movie. Even though I don't you know I don't, I think this should clearly if at the very most be a PG thirteen because. I mean, there was a little bit of sex, but most of it is just teenage angst. And but teenage angst wrap, um, heightened by this tension of of faith and and what does it mean to to really believe that who you are is sinful? Yeah, I would actually say the one of the sex scenes that happens at the camp was like one of the more <sighs> intense and disturbing that, disturbing. that I've ever Agreed. seen. And and that was actually one of my favorite parts of the movie because it made me feel something. Mm-hmm. It made me feel – I mean, yeah. it was, like, just a, a still camera on these two teenage girls, like, not moving away. And it's, like, not really joyful or affirming or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're and, nervous that someone is going to come in. Like, there's all this tension. Yeah. But for the rest of the film, I actually didn't feel much. And, and when I think about – it's very hard to make a movie about a – sort of hot button social and political issue. This one in particular, the issue of conversion therapy is very topical and relevant. I mean, states, state legislatures are currently in conversations about banning it. It's still legal in 36 states. This is something that, you know, um, groups that ad, that uh, work to prevent LGBTQ teen suicide have been working a lot to try to ban conversion therapy. Chloe Grace Moretz, actually, um, I spoke with someone from the Trevor Project recently, one of these advocacy groups. She's been working with them, which I think is great. So it's really hard to make a movie about that that does not feel either ham-fisted or like a cop-out or sort of self-consciously woke or like you're blanketing over nuances. 
So when I watch a movie like that, I have to think like, okay, what do I want from this? And I either want a great movie that makes me feel things and challenges my brain and has some sort of artistry and creativity on offer, or I want an okay movie that will be good for the public discourse, TM. Uh, And I actually think that this, for me, failed on both counts. It didn't make me feel much. I think part of that was because they chose the wrong main character. I did not see the character of Cameron um, having much internal struggle at all. She seems more of like this quiet observer. Part of that, I think, was a problem with the script. Part of it might be with Chloe Grace Moretz's acting. But I also think it was adapted from a book and and perhaps it was rendered better in the book. I haven't read it. But I think there were a couple other characters that would have been much more interesting main characters like um, Cameron Post's roommate who really does want to change and be straight and thinks she can and then continually fails or um, the boy that you mentioned, Latifah, who almost gets to go home but doesn't. Um, I think the three characters at the center of the film um, are just sort of bored and self-confident, seem like they know themselves, just uh, are are over it. And I think focusing the film on those three people made it feel like there was no big narrative arc or much emotion at the center of the film. I agree. I agree. I agree with that a lot. On the is it good for public discourse side – um, I don't know, Verilyn, you've kind of made me change my mind a little bit because I think like who could who would be the, uh, maybe an audience for this who either their mind would be changed or they might be activated to um, advocate against conversion therapy. Um, and I just felt like the depiction of it maybe wasn't not that I think they really needed to show more abuse or something, but I felt like the depiction of it was slightly muted. I don't know. I mean, the moment where he um, and I told myself I would look up the scripture, but of course I did not. But Owen, the character that um, Latifah mentioned, you know, didn't get to go home. He's sitting in one of these therapy um, sessions with the director of the camp, who's like the psychologist, the person that that runs these conversations. Um, She and, and she makes him read the letter from her from his dad that when his dad essentially says that you can't come home and he starts to use scripture it was something like i'm strong in my weakness because his dad said you're weak and i can't have that sort of weakness in my house because alex is the bomb alex has sent corinthians (laughs) (laughs) um so he says you know my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in my weakness and like as a person that has read that verse or like that's heard that verse be um, spoken from the pulpit, hearing this 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 teenager that has just been rejected from his father in a way that like Jesus would never have rejected him. And and that's the faith that his father used to to um, justify rejecting his son. I was highly affected by that. And so I can see that changing maybe the minds of someone that was like that that thinks that you know love the what is it like hate the sin love the sinner or whatever like someone that truly believes that in their heart like I feel like this was highly effective so you know I think there's a couple in terms of feelings (laughs) because I've been having a feeling week uh, just (laughs) off the heels of some anti-oppression training and one of the things that I think for me timing wise was in particularly the 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 Gen Xer sort of like so the the Columbia House and the and the four non blondes song in the kitchen and oh, yeah. I definitely felt that um, <laughs> and I wanted to get up and sing the four non blondes song with them and it was like one of my first Columbia House's CDs Aww. that I received at home before I went to college that is anyway, a great sing along song oh it is um, and then the dresses and the one ten camera so there's definitely like little pieces where I was like oh my gosh I'm old enough to like relate to a period piece so there was that. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was unexpected, um, but the other the other thing about the way I, I, I think of it is more. It definitely felt like a very long trailer, or something that was crafted, you know, for the sake of you know being very instructive about a problem, as opposed to you know a good dramatic piece. I definitely thought the character of Cameron. I kept wanting her to sort of like snap out of it she just yeah. seemed very like hazy and not really there to your point like just very I was like I wanted her to move her lips more and just like <laughs> just you know I just wanted her to 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 like express herself but then having them all sort of just super um, aware of who they were and who they were going to be regardless of this experience which is what I think um, 
misses a little bit of the mark in that so much of the oppression, whether or not you go to a camp like this, but it could just be happening within you or within your family or within your culture, that that exercise is happening all the time to people, which is leading. And there's the, the, the statistics on suicide in the LGBT youth community are just happening in their communities. They're not necessarily at these camps, but mm. that level of, of, of inner struggle is so intense yeah. um, among so many communities and the high rate of suicide and suicide attempt Mm -hmm. and the number of of kids who are on the street who were LGBT youth who were cast out from their homes is such a reality, which is why in part I thought the end of the movie with, sorry for spoilers, but at the end of the movie, they were just sort of, you know, embracing the the nature, sort of getting away was was the part that was so sad to me because what it said was they're not going to be embraced by their families and a warm home Mm. of security and graduate from high school maybe even and have financial security or someone to feed them. You know what I mean? Despite how tortured it is and just all of those you know, comforts that are just literally like supporting a child until they're ready to support themselves was mm-hmm. just so stark to me in a way that felt very fairy tale-ish and took away a little bit from, you know, what does this look like? It doesn't look like they're going to just go off into the sunset and be wonderful people. This looks like they're going to be dropped off by this truck somewhere and mm-hmm. probably exploited um, and probably end up back home where they're abused again. I mean, just there, there was a lot of that. where, And I wasn't sure what the ending was supposed to do yeah but it definitely and as a woman who's sitting next to me in the theater and and when it was over we both sort of said huh you know (laughs) but hers was audible mine was internal um and so i you know that that so that's how i felt i think that it was i think that there was something that was very documentary about it because of the secondary characters but in terms of like a good arc of dramatic movie or portrayal i do think that it was a little I don't know, just lacking. Yeah. Listeners, let us know what you thought. You can email us at thewaves@slate.com. So football season is starting soon, and for the first time in NFL history, there will be male cheerleaders on the field. Glass ceiling broken. Woo! <laughs> Latifa, <laughs> tell us what is happening and what you think of the whole thing. Well, um, we're, you know, as as we know, there's been a lot of scandal in the F- NFL about how cheerleaders are treated oh, or mistreated. Been. There have been um, alleged abuse, uh, lawsuits, uh, you know, d- discussion of pay discrimination. Um, we know it is definitely fraught with lots of issues, treatment, uh, objectification, um, sexual assault, even in some cases, um, essentially the women being on display, even if, you know, there's this sort of double class of the the cheerleaders and then the people who just dress up like cheerleaders and help sell tickets. Um, So personally, um, as a person who had uh, pom-poms when she was a kid and wanted to be a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader, according to my mother, (laughs) I still maintain that this is a made-up story. Um, So I've always been, you know, very aware of cheerleading and what it does and, you know, how how going to also, you know, going to an all women's school when I was younger and we didn't have cheerleaders and my daughter's like, I understand cheerleading. I want to do it. And just generally being very down on cheerleading for multiple reasons. Personally, Um, I think it's just bad, bad, bad. However, we definitely know that in the case where in this case, it's a uh, New Orleans and Los Angeles, I think, are the first ones who are adopting uh, the policy of hiring male cheerleaders. The question is, is this going to help um, cheerleading? Is it going to um, help change the culture of women being objectified? Is it going to help raise the pay scale of the women who are in these jobs, as we know often happens with uh, female-dominated occupations where men are introduced, <laughs> as in they're introduced into like the wild, but men are introduced um, and come in and sort of raise the level of of pay, which could be seen uh, positively? Or is just this going to be, you know, men are going to, you know, these men are just going to sort of file into the existing, the existing culture um, of objectification and exploitation and sort of using bodies to sell tickets and the unfortunate coupling that we have of sports and this activity in our culture. And, you know, I don't, first of all, 
there, as you mentioned, are three <laughs> male cheerleaders. So I don't think there's <laughs> going to be, you know, any wave of significant culture or tech like, or changes logistically in how this is done. We do know that cheerleading is, um, especially on college campuses and in other spaces where there are a lot of male cheerleaders and you can, um, and it's a very athletic enterprise and um, there's lots of squads that have women and men. Um, some might argue so that you can throw the women up higher in the air if you have male cheerleaders <laughs> um, because of brute force and brute strength. But, I, you know, it, I don't have any hope that this is going to really change the nature or the culture of cheerleading in this country. I think it's possible that um, you know, some some might say this is equal opportunity. So you could just you, you could have men to ogle at as well. We'll see if the men how 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 the clo- I'm very curious as to what the outfits will be for the men cheerleaders, where we know there's a little bit less. Uh, the college level is a little bit more PG, but who knows? I mean, are the men going to be shirtless? Are they going to be in bikinis? Are they going to be fully clothed? Um, we we have yet to see. But I definitely think that um, the timing of it in light of the stories that we've heard about how uh, this, this group of workers is treated um, is not going to go unnoticed. But again, I think that there are men who are exploited as well as women in these situations. And I, I don't think that we can assume that there's going to be any significant changes or challenges. However, you know, there could be, we've seen that there, there could be some economic impact. Um, and that's yet to be seen. But Equal opportunity, for yeah. sure. <laughs> I can shed a little light on the uh, on what they'll wear. Or I, I obviously haven't seen them in any games because the season hasn't started yet. But I did a little sleuthing on the uh, LA Rams website for a piece that I wrote about this very issue last week. Um, and you know, it's like the their headshots basically, except because they're cheerleaders, it's their full body shots. And so there's dozens of women. Um, and then these two men. And the women are all in what look like bras to me. A lot of them have underwires. They're all wearing different things. It's not their uniforms, but they have jewels. It's None of them are dressed in anything more substantial than a, a set of lingerie. And then there's the two men. And they're wearing what I think men wear to the gym. So <laughs> a baggy tank top and baggy gym shorts and sneakers. And all the women are in these poses where they're like popping their hips out and their arms are in really strange formulations around their faces. It, all of them, it looks like you could just poke them and push them over. And these two <laughs> men are standing like feet spread apart, arms crossed. One of them even has a really intense sort of uh, glower on his face when all the women have these like beautiful smiles and one of the men too but the other one it reminds me of when you're watching a football game and all their faces come up and it's like you know Mm -hmm. Jason Seahorn Mm -hmm. cornerback Mm -hmm. and which is like a really old yeah exactly one of the cheerleaders (laughs) looks more like that and so there that already speaks to what I think will be the continued disparate treatment but then also they I guess did a demo performance um, that the the LA Rams cheerleading squad posted on their Instagram page. And um, one of the things that I actually think is significant about the men joining these squads is um, I learned, I didn't know that there were already men on some NFL cheerleading squads, but they were only for stunts. So what you were talking about, Latifah, throwing women in the air and stuff, they weren't doing the dances. So now these men are going to be doing the same dances. So not actually just the stunts, but the hip swivels and the shimmies and what have you. Um, and, you know, that's not to to de- um, to denigrate the great dancing that goes on. But, you know, I do think it's significant that they will be doing the same dance moves as the women for the first time. So I With watched pom-poms. one of their performances. Well, that's the thing. In this performance, all the women had pom-poms except the man. Mm-hmm. And I actually asked the L.A. Rams cheerleading PR person or whatever, like, what's the deal? Why doesn't this guy have pom-poms? And she said, wait, I have her quote right here. Um, Since this is the first year we've had male cheerleaders as part of our team, nothing is off the table. However, we don't anticipate them using palms. And in conversations with Quentin and Napoleon, those are the two male cheerleaders, we found they both preferred not to use palms. First of all, palms, I learned, is the appropriate term for a pom-pom. 
But also, do women get to decide whether they prefer to use mm. palms or not? I mean, I, I'm i not sure how much to believe that answer. I, I think it's it's probable that the men didn't want to use palms. Perhaps they've never danced with palms before because that's not a thing male cheerleaders do. But also, if you're trying to say, oh, th- what a gender-neutral space we have, uh, which is what I think they're trying to say <laughs> because this just ha- so happened to come at the, the same year that all these uh, gender discrimination lawsuits are coming out, then give the men a set of palms. What do you think, Verilyn? Uh, <laughs> I feel like this could have been less also like, a, is this sexist questions? Like, yes, this is <laughs> totally sexist. Um, I just can't, like that. I'm, I'm boycotting the NFL. I mean, I'm, I've never been a huge NFL watcher in the first place, but I think this year in particular, I've heard a lot of friends I know that have watched the NFL are specifically not going to be watching it because of the way um, the NFL has even treated the whole, like, players protesting by kneeling and so i just feel like this is this like a almost like an amorosa-esque move to now start like to have this headline that we're all look we're letting men into the into the into the nfl now to be cheerleaders look we're not sexist douchebags but i think you made a point in your in your piece um christina that like even their ability to be able to say oh i you know, I prefer not to use pom-poms, you know, where women, the controversy that came out last year around the the Saints cheerleader that got fired for putting up a picture on her Instagram, right? These cheerleaders are not even allowed to fraternize with the players because also there's an assumption that all of these players are straight. And so therefore you need to avoid them because men can help their sexual wiles. And so because they're attracted to you, woman, you can't be around them. So in a way, like as with all things, this patriarchy system is also harmful to men. So I think if anything, I'm more interested in just how is this going to, when 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 are we going to get the headline about the drunk um, fan that threw a can bottle at one of these dudes' heads, right? Like, I mean, I'm sorry to be so rash, but that's where my mind goes to. Like, I, like this is going to be bad, and eventually this is going to mean something bad for these men. And I think, like, if anything, that's more what I'm waiting to see versus that there's going to be any real change to the way um, the NFL treats men versus women. Sorry yeah, to be I mean, so dark. No, go there. Are you coining Amorosa-esque? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I should. <laughs> she would love that. I'm sure she might have already trademarked that. <laughs> I also learned that cheerleading used to be an all-male sport. I did like see that. Like most sports and jobs <laughs> and activities uh, when it started in the 1800s. And then as women got involved, uh, I think it became more closely tied to sexual objectification and less about just like coordinated chants. Mm -hmm. Um, So who knows, perhaps as more than three men enter cheerleading teams, maybe the other thing I was thinking about is maybe little boys will watch football with their families and see men on the cheerleading teams and think like, oh, there's multiple jobs that I could do in such an industry. You know, I don't just have to be the one running around concussing people. I could also be the sexy dancer. And I was thinking someone would be watching and thinking to myself, I could be objectified too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm expecting expecting that those baggy clothes are not going to be around for very long. (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait for equal opportunity, offensive objectification. Okay, listeners, tell us what you think. Is this going to change the NFL? Is it going to make more people, more little boys everywhere, learn that they can be sexually objectified on a football field? Email us at thewaves@slate.com. All right, let's get into our recommendations. Who would like to go first? I'll go first. Thank you. So my recommendation, um, this is related to the show and how we were talking about the miseducation of Cameron Post and in talking with friends about it, uh, multiple people um, first thought, like the miseducation of Lauren Hill. And I said, no, not like the miseducation of Lauren Hill. <laughs> and in my process of sort of, you know, sort of talking about why was miseducation something that was coined or not? And one of the things that I don't think people realize is that uh, the miseducation of Lauren Hill, Lauren Hill is a pop star and um, hip hop artist, um, R&B. She's a mixed genre, a little bit of reggae um, in, the, in the 90s as well um, at the same time. 
is that she based the title Miseducation of Lauren Hill on a 1933 book, I believe, called The Miseducation of the Negro, which was written by Dr. Carter Woodson, an African-American man who is talking about how um, African-Americans at the time were essentially being taught um, on the expectation and on how to be inferior. And like there's several really awesome quotes, but just if you're training and educating um, a black person to be inferior and to come through the back door. One of the quotes was akin to, you know, even if there's no back door, he will carve a back door. And I think that the idea was that, you know, this was a very powerful piece at the time. And so I do think that there are people who were kind of asking about whether or not miseducation of Cameron Post is some sort of appropriation. So in addition to that question, the miseducation of Lauren Hill is an excellent album, obviously, for multiple reasons. So my recommendation is the miseducation of Lauren Hill by Lauren Hill. Uh, listen to the album. It's great. Um, speaking of period pieces, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I listened to it a lot um, in my youth and I just listened to it um, recently again. And, um, you know, because of the, the, the place she was in her life um, and coming out independent uh, and creating music and art in her own form, in her own voice was significant. Uh, so um, that is my recommendation. That's great. And I think there's a lot of a new generation of people who are now getting turned on to Lauren Hill because Drake just sampled her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've heard a lot of people talking about how, you know, th- I've heard it said like a renaissance of Lauren Hill. I'm like, she doesn't need a renaissance, you know, her, she's still just as relevant now as ever. So she was in her early twenties when she made that album. Can you imagine? No, I cannot imagine. Like, what were we doing with our lives in our early? <laughs> I'm like, what was I doing? Probably something great, Verilyn. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I'm gonna go next. I have actually two recommendations. Um, the first is "The Power" by Naomi Alderman. It's been out for a while. I'm definitely late on the power boat, um, but it's this. It's this. It's science fiction um, novel about imagining a future in which women are able to have like shoot electricity through their fingers and it's really um like what will happen if women are able to overpower men because of this ability and it's really like it's just got me thinking about just the ways in which we're complicit in all these different ways to what happened to women and girls in around the world and highly recommend it and then my second recommendation is a podcast called The Realness. That's from WNYC. It's a podcast that documents the life of Prodigy, who's a rapper that had sickle cell. And there's a moment where he's just like, when you think about sickle cell is imagine if your bones were on fire and like that visual. Right. And so something that affects so many Americans, but because it mostly affects African-Americans, like t- this way that they told the story through telling his story, but also telling the, the numbers around who, who has sickle cell and how much um, research goes into it, research dollars go into it compared to like other diseases where because it affects white people, but not necessarily as many people, but they have like literally a cure for <laughs> whatever this X disease is. It's just mm. a really, I mean, I, I think that's the power of audio and, and, and storytelling narrative stories, the way that the specific shows you this universal issue. So highly recommended um, the realness and also the power. Sounds really good. I have two recommendations as well. The first is more of a personal plug. We have a new Slate podcast Woo-hoo. that drops today when we're recording, which is Wednesday. But by the time you hear this, it will already be in your podcast feeds, possibly. Um, it's called Outward. It is Slate's LGBT podcast. I am hosting hey. along with my hi, thanks, Marilyn. Um, my colleague Brian Lauder and uh, Brendan Tensley, an amazing editor at New America. Um, We talk about But I'm a Cheerleader, actually, in our very (laughs) first episode, because it's going to be a monthly podcast on themes. And our first theme is roots. So the roots of our queer identities. And and that idea or that term, I think, was coined by But I'm a Cheerleader, where they all have to report out their roots, like the thing that made them gay. And it's uh, very funny in that movie. And um, I'm just so excited about this podcast. We've been planning it for so long, and it feels incredible to have it finally ready for human ears. Um, But my real recommendation is a short film called Normal Appearances that I watched last week. It's only about five minutes. You can find it online. It's directed by a documentary filmmaker, Penny Lane, and it's all 
clips from The Bachelor that she <laughs> and her assistant have strung together, taken out all of the sound. So no background music, no chatter. But then they re-recorded uh, sound effects over it. So all of the clips that they use are instances where the women on the show are sort of like adjusting their clothes because they're too tight or too small, um, kind of wobbling around in their heels, fixing their hair, all of these gestures that people do when they have dressed themselves up because they want to be looked at but then are kind of uncomfortable when they're actually being looked at. It's so eerie. They went into um, a sound effects studio and like held a microphone close to somebody adjusting a bra strap and stuff like that. Uh And it's just five minutes of uh, very creepily staring at women adjusting themselves. Um, I interviewed the director for a Q&A that we published on Slate yesterday, and um, she she spoke really uh, eloquently, I thought, about the way people are sort of uh, performing femininity in, and and that that performance doesn't always come naturally. And to me, it looked like their bodies were rejecting this sort of femininity that they placed onto them, like they're like they've been dressed up to look like Barbie dolls. And then when they actually go out and try to walk around and live their lives in this makeup and this hair and these clothes, it doesn't quite work as well as they hoped it would. Um, so watch that. It's called Normal Appearances. It'll make you watch The Bachelor in a whole new light. All right, that's our show for today. Thank you to producer Verilyn Williams and our production assistant, Alex Barish. And listeners, if you have any feedback on the show, you can email us at thewavesatslate.com or find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash thewavespodcast. For Latifah Lyles and Verilyn Williams, I'm Christina Cotarucci. 